morning. It's good to see you all again this morning. I'll invite you again to open with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 8. We finish the chapter together this morning. You could be finding verse 48. It's where we'll begin to read in just a moment. There is a lot of irony in the thoughts and feelings that are going to be expressed in our text this morning. Jesus has had to respond to attitudes from these Jews, this Jewish group that he's speaking with, attitudes of entitlement stemming from a very high self-estimation. So we've heard them say things like verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Verse 41, we have one father, even God. They have made these self-identifying statements. And we have seen already last week as Jesus responds to those things and is putting them in their place, not as an act of rudeness, but as a display of honesty. And we'll see this morning, they respond to him with statements of personal abuse. You see it in verse 48 and following. And the response that we have here this morning from our Lord really centers around a concept that can be difficult for us, uh, a temptation that we struggle with. I imagine a difficulty that has been with humanity as long as there have been humans. They present, and Jesus responds to, the notion of false humility. False humility. Surely all humility is good humility, right? Humility is a virtue that we, that we pursue. So would anything being considered humility be good? Well, that's not the case. And that's not the case because there is something that often calls itself humility that might even look like humility in certain contexts, but that is in fact the very opposite of humility. We'll hear out the rest of this back and forth between Jesus and the crowd here. And as we do, in what we hear and in what we see in Jesus' example, we are being called to reject false humility. We'll see on display in his responses and his actions. He's not teaching here. He is reacting in a dialogue in terms of directly. But we see taught to us by way of his example this morning four reasons to reject false humility. And we'll go through those this morning. Before we do, let's read the passage together. I'll read from the English Standard Version. Uh, John 8, 48 to 59. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, 
If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Before we hear and in hearing, try to consider and apply the four reasons that we will see in this text to reject false humility, we need to do something first. We need to establish that the question of humility is really what's at issue here. So I want to start by just pointing out the objections of the, these Jews themselves in order to make that clear. I trust that it may be fairly obvious in the replies that they're giving to him. But notice what they say and why they say it. Notice first that the opening insults and dishonor that we find in verse 48 are coming because of the claims Jesus just made at the end of last week's passage. You remember what we heard our Lord claim. He claimed to be immune from accusations of sin. He claimed to be a literal godsend to them. And he claimed that hearing his word was equivalent to hearing God's word. Verse 43, you cannot bear to hear my word. And he reiterates this in verse 47, speaking of the words of God. These are high claims that he has just made, and that's what leads to their insults in verse 48. They cannot believe the gall of a man who would make such statements about himself. The second place where they're going to voice strong opposition this morning is in verse 52. And notice that that comes, again, right on the heels of Jesus' lofty self-report in verse 51. You see what he said there? The claim that he made, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's quite a thing to say. And look at what follows. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Do you hear what their objection is? Verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? What are they scandalized by here? They are amazed at what they perceive to be an incredible arrogance on the part of Jesus. Who do you make yourself out to be? What they think he should do is be more humble. Now, let me ask you, was Jesus humble? What did the scriptures tell us? Well, without question, the answer to that question is yes, he was humble. He's, his coming is prophesied in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, with these words, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey. 
Philippians 2.8 says of Jesus that he humbled himself. Humility is an accurate word to describe Jesus, but it is not enough to simply say that and move on. It's not quite that simple. We have to think more carefully about what it is that we're talking about when we say that. And I would ask you to look with me for just a moment at Philippians 2 to hear what Paul actually says about the humility of our Lord, how he describes the willing humility of Jesus. Philippians 2, we'll just stay here for, for, uh, for a few moments. I'll read verses 5 to 11. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We find there in verse 7 that Jesus, it says, emptied himself, but it's something of a of a uh, subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by clothing himself in humanity in the incarnation. He says by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And verse 8, being found in that human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. In other words, we find the substance of Jesus' humility there. His humility is demonstrated in his willingness to come on the divine mission of redemption for his people. A mission that would require of him, think of what it required, mistreatment and abuse at the hands of sinful men. Dishonor, such as the dishonor we find in our passage this morning. Mocking, such as the mocking we find in our passage this morning. The crucifixion itself, not to mention the bearing of divine wrath when he himself did not deserve it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account. That is the humility that Jesus voluntarily embraced. It is not a humility in the way that maybe we sometimes mistakenly think of the word. That humility did not consist in some sort of fundamental low opinion of himself for its own sake. He should have been more humble. He should have thought lowly of himself. And one of the things that I pray that we remember this morning or that we are reminded of is that the very same thing is true for us as well because it's inherent in the definition of the word humility. Humility should not be defined in our minds as something like, quote, thinking little of oneself. So how is it defined? True humility. I don't think we get much better of a definition than we heard in what Ryan read to us earlier out of Romans 12. Let me remind you of something that we heard there. Romans 12, 3, Paul said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. 
Humility is the result of sober thinking about oneself. Jesus knows exactly who he is and what he has come to do. So, for example, we keep finding him emphasizing over and over again that he is only speaking the things he has been sent by the Father to speak. He even said a couple of weeks ago, I have much to say concerning you, but I really am sent on divine mission, and I say what has been given me to say. He is coming in obedience. They want him to speak more lowly of himself than what is accurate. But that's not what humility does. That would be a display of false humility. True humility is the result of sober thinking about oneself. And so Jesus is going to say down in verse 55, if I would paraphrase, he'll say, if I were to speak less of myself, I would be a liar like you. I've been thankful for us to arrive at this passage this morning, because to be transparent with you, the issue of false humility is one that concerns me, and in some ways concerns me particularly as a potential threat, a sneaky one at that, within our very own circles. Among those who rightly understand a biblical view of sin and of the fall and of our sinful nature, there can be a temptation to misunderstand and to live, speak, reflect ourselves, represent ourselves in a way that would be more consistently described as false humility. I'll try to lay out some practical examples of where we can find that danger in our time as we go through our passage this morning. But the way that we'll structure the rest of this is simply to let Jesus' words reveal for us, one at a time, a series of warnings Four warnings we'll see, four reasons that false humility is dangerous and ought to be rejected. The first one that we find, we could put it this way, reject false humility because God sees truly and judges accordingly. We see this especially at the end of verse 50, but it's their insults in his reply in 48 and 49 that lead us there. As we've seen, they have heard his claims from last week, and they reason that anyone with such, in their minds, ridiculously high self-reports must be out of their mind. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? As for their demon comment, it's hard to judge their intentions. Sometimes they give that accusation, especially the Pharisees. He's often accused of being demon-possessed. And sometimes it seems to be a legitimate question. They actually think he might be demon-possessed. Other times they seem to throw that out as just an insult, as a you're crazy kind of a statement. It, it happens in John's Gospel three times. This is one of them. The other two times both sound to me like that second thing, like a more crass, uh, you're-out-of-your-mind kind of statement. We saw it in John 7, 20. He asked, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? It sounds to me like they're saying, you're out of your mind. Later in chapter 10, verse 20, many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Makes me suspect that they're just trying to insult his intelligence. It's also paired with the Samaritan insult here, which I think really reveals their attitude. 
This is the only time in any of the Gospels where Jesus is accused of being a Samaritan. It's probably because of his challenge he just made toward them. Remember, he just challenged their rightful claim as Abraham's children. And the Samaritans also challenged the Jews' claim of being the sole legitimate children of Abraham. So they may be grabbing on to that and throwing this insult of Samaritan. He makes no reply to that comment. And a very quick one to the demon accusation. He says, I do not have a demon. But then he sets up the rest of of this chapter by very simply declaring the real difference between them. The real difference is that he gives honor where honor is due, and they do not. That's why they would make such erroneous statements like the ones they've just made. But it's also why they would be outraged at the things Jesus has just said about himself. They are not thinking and acting in a way that gives honor where honor is due. And his reply to them in verse 50 is simply massive. When he says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. See, they dishonor him, verse 49. And really, they want him to dishonor himself. The problem is that someone really does seek to glorify Jesus. I mean, the things that the Father has sent him to say about himself definitely glorify Jesus, don't they? They lift him up. Somebody does want to glorify Jesus. And that one just so happens to be, he says, the judge of all of you. The Father has sent the Son to put himself on display. And so God forbid that he would choose to think more lowly of himself than is true, or to speak such. This is a point for us to build on as we go, and we'll add to it with these other warnings that we see. But at this point, we need to remember, regarding our own selves, that the same is true, isn't it? God is the judge. He knows how he has made you. He knows exactly how he has equipped you. He knows his calling of you and his purposes. So that to embrace false humility as his children is to act either, A, as if we can somehow fool God, or B, as if it were better to match the expectations of the people around us than the knowledge of the one who is in fact the judge of all. I promise you on that day, when we stand before the Lord, we will not have any confusion as to which it was better to please, which it was better to honor. It does us well to be reminded this morning, he is our judge. Reject false humility because God sees truly and judges accordingly. Second reason that we find here, reject false humility because... It injures the people that you love. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We've heard him make similar statements already. This one is as direct as any of them, isn't it? It's a statement about the safety of the very people that he is talking to. And how that relates to Jesus' own message being accurately delivered to them. What happens 
if Jesus adopts the false humility that they demand and stops speaking these things about himself, stops bringing the message that the Father has sent him to bring, stops telling people things like, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What happens if he gives in to that? It was already Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus knows who he is. And such is his significance that if he hides the message that he came to bring about himself, what's going to happen? Men will die in their sins. In other words, Jesus rejects false humility because the well-being of those he loves depends on it. And again, we'll ask this question many times this morning. Is it any different for us today? For you and for me? If we are in Christ, if we are called by his name, we belong to him, God has opened our eyes. We we have been shown the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have what the Bible calls treasure hidden in these jars of clay, right? We know the truth about where every man, woman, and child stands before God, if not for Christ. We know the very name. of the one way to the Father. We know his name. Now, no doubt, it would be pride to think that I came by that knowledge myself or that I was granted that, all of those blessings, because God looked deep into me and saw something just preferable to that unbelieving neighbor. And that's why this is the case. That would be pride. And we are right to be constantly on guard against pride. Much destruction, much wandering comes from pride. However, it would be false humility to speak and act as if we really don't know any better than anyone else. And as for consequences, well, God uh, gives us those through Paul in Romans chapter 10. He asks a series of questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Christians must reject the temptation of false humility. Because the well-being of those we love depends on it. Those we love, those whom God has put in our sphere of influence are robbed then of some of the very demonstrations that God would use to move them to praising him. Our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. That implies that there is light that we have, that others need. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My possession of the light is actually leading to things that could be called good works. Yes. And he intends to display himself through that light, through those good works, so that men would see and give glory to God. God intends to use the display of his work in our lives to be an influence on those around us. Now, again, to be sure, that doesn't mean that we think or say more than we find God granting. 
And remember, that was exactly Paul's starting point in the Romans 12 warning that he gave. He began there by saying, I say to everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So we must never convey to others through our words or our actions that we have somehow arrived at something. Paul certainly didn't. Did he? Just check Philippians 3.12. He makes that very clear. We would never convey to others that we don't continue to be needy, to be prone to wander, to fall short. Nor has the church of God's people ever confessed such things. Our very confessions and catechisms affirm this. For example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us to confess that, quote, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, listen, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. We don't act as if that's not the case. We are not the source of light, nor did we earn that light. We are gracious recipients of that, but we do continue to be called to display it. And to speak or act as if that is not the case is a great danger to those that we love. I'll mention one other way that this danger could manifest itself while we're on the subject. And since we have brought in Romans 12, Romans 12 is a warning about pride but a warning that, that equally applies to false humility. The warning is that either of those things can lead us to neglect our use of God's gifting to serve others in the church. Pride affects us that way because it makes us wish we had other gifts. It makes us jealous. It makes us feel unappreciated. Uh, and so it can lead us not to exercise our gifts. But false humility wants to act as if it has no gifts as if there is nothing that, that God might have given and is using. And I hope we can see that both of those are equally dangerous because they lead to the same thing, which is God's people going without. We are commanded to be thankful for his gifts and to put them to use. And so if you find, as you live and do life within a local body, that your keen eye for the needs of others tends to bless people, then serve in those ways. If you notice that time spent studying, meditating on God's word and sharing that with others tends to bless and build up, then teach. If you notice God has given means and has given you a heart for generosity, then give and give generously, as Paul puts it, and so on and so forth. But see, false humility injures the body because it will keep you from thinking that you are allowed to recognize how God has equipped you. My friend, if you do that, you're not being humble. You're being falsely humble. You are a steward, my friend. Let's remember, we are stewards of God's gifts, which means we are accountable for their use. So we reject false humility because God is the judge and he knows the work that he's doing. We reject it because the well-being of those that we love depends on us rejecting false humility. Thirdly, and this I think is maybe the most significant in terms of what we see in this passage, we are to reject false humility because it disrespects the efficacy of God's work. We'll see this in a couple of ways. Look first at verse 54. Jesus answered, 
If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Now, I think this is a good place to mention, and it applies to what he said in verse 50 as well. Let's just acknowledge, obviously, the self-reports that he is giving do glorify him, don't they? They're not demeaning to him. They're all about his significance and his glory. His point in these places is that these are not simply his own self-efforts at self-glorification. That is not what's happening here. If it were, it would be of no value. Verse 54 is essentially saying, if I am trying to glorify myself separate from the work and intentions of the Father, my glory is nothing. I am not glorifying myself in some kind of an ultimate way. My Father is glorifying me. False humility is a sin because it denies legitimate ways that God is choosing to work in us and make use of us. And I think it warrants us asking the question for ourselves this morning. If we want to glorify God, and what else are we here for? For what other purpose has he caused us to be born again? If we want to glorify God, we aren't doing that when we talk about ourselves as if God were not truly at work. We don't jump over that fence and begin to boast and make false, prideful statements but to speak as if he's not at work is not glorifying to our Father. To speak as if there is no evidence in us of the hand of God in our lives or of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. That thought has come to my mind at some points in the past as I've read different things, different ways that things are, are verbalized. In particular, some Christian prayers, for example. Um, prayers usually that you can tell are very well-intentioned and are trying to be very honest and open in a confessing of sin kind of way. This is something that we should regularly be doing as we pray to God, is bearing our souls before him. There's nothing to hide. Uh, confessing sin and our ongoing need. What worries me sometimes is the language we might choose to use to do that. It can be troubling, but we're especially in danger of it if we don't think there's any risk to overflowing. Maybe since it's good to confess sin, the, the strongest terms I could use to do so are just going to be that much more honoring to God. I don't think that's true. I'll give you a couple of examples of some that I, that I have seen in the past. Let me read these. There's just two of these. And we'll think about them. Number one. Here we go. We confess that we are full of sin and cannot walk uprightly. We scheme endlessly and impatiently to establish our own kingdoms. Here's the second one. We are stubborn, blind people who repeatedly and willfully stray from you. We will not stay near you. In our blindness, even our ability to confess has been distorted. Now, the trouble is that there's some very true statements in there, isn't there? There's, there's plenty of things that we individually could grab hold of, especially in particular times and seasons in our lives. It is very good at making plain our ongoing uh, battle with the flesh that will not end in this side of death. 
The problem is more clear, I think, when I read them again and ask you to think of them in terms of descriptions of the unbelieving world. How's this sound to you as a description of the unbelieving world in rebellion against its maker? It is full of sin and cannot walk uprightly. It schemes endlessly and impatiently to establish its own kingdom. It is full of stubborn, blind people who repeatedly and willfully stray from God. They will not stay near him. In their blindness, even their ability to confess has been distorted. That does not sound very bad to me as a description of the rebellious, unbelieving world. And that's what troubles me about the wording. These are statements that seem biblically to describe the lost world very well. And the more that our own self-descriptions are the same as the Bible's descriptions of the unbelieving world that we have been saved out of, the more we create a picture that says there's no real difference. My friends, there is a difference. And to say that there's not is to present a picture that dishonors our Lord because it denies the efficacy of his work. Notice how he continues in verse 55 of our text. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Would you feel comfortable making such a statement of distinction with others in this world? I know God. You do not. If we are tempted by false humility, it can sound, it can sound rude. It can sound prideful to make such a statement. And maybe you're thinking, well, Blake, we're not Jesus, are we? No, we're certainly not Jesus. The problem is that the word of this Jesus over and over again says that same thing about you. And me. John 14, 7, Jesus says to Thomas, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Galatians 5, 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 1 John 2, Starting in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Friends, the Bible says that about us. We must be able to speak in such terms. And John doesn't mean in 1 John there that we do any of those things perfectly, does he? But if we create the impression that there is no difference in our relationship to his word, to his commandments, we present to the world a picture of a God that does not change people. God changes people. And he does not just change them in the life to come. He changes them in this life. Look with me. Flip here for a moment. Romans 8. This is the only other place I'll have you stray from John here. Romans 8, I'll start reading in verse 8. This is helpful, I hope, to see. 
Listen to the words he chooses to use and notice the distinctions he's making. Romans 8, 8 through 11. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's talking in the present. These ones, these bodies, signs of life here and now. If humility involves sober self-evaluation, then in this life, ours is always going to, by necessity, include the realities of creatureliness and of fallenness. But the new birth adds a necessary element of consideration. He has changed us. False humility tempts us to diminish the work that God is doing. And no matter the good intentions, the result is that it disrespects God's work. It misrepresents God's work. Fourth and finally, we see reason here in Jesus' example to, re to reject false humility because it is not a faithful imitation of the Lord we love. Now that's a statement that's true about this entire passage, obviously. I... I I label these final verses this way, verses 56 to 59, simply because of the profound picture that we find here of Jesus' sober estimation of himself. We simply see, I think, the greatest true statement of his own glory yet. Yeah, look again at verse 56. There's more than one in here. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He rejoiced at God's promise of a coming seed that would come from him. Jesus is the satisfaction of everything that God promised to Abraham. Everything he's ever promised to his chosen people, the recipients of his mercy. Now there is a question that can be challenging here. The question of how or when Abraham saw it. There's a lot of debate about how we should understand Jesus' words there. Lots of solutions suggested. We won't go through those this morning. It could simply be Jesus displaying heavenly knowledge, though, couldn't it? That Abraham is in heaven rejoicing at the coming of Christ into the world. It could be other things as well that he's intending there in the Old Testament itself, but the point here is that Jesus is claiming to be the epitomizing of Abraham's joy. But more than that, He's claiming to have, in fact, pre-existed Abraham. 
But still more than that. He is going to take on to himself in now the most unambiguous way, the divine name. Remember, he said this back in verse 24, but it was not completely clear then what he meant. Now it is. This is the name God gave to Moses to bring to Israel. Who should I say is sending me? He says, tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And the reaction in verse 59 of attempted stoning, which is the punishment for blasphemy, makes this very clear. And there is so much that we could say about this. But our point this morning is simple. We do well to notice what he has just done. And to notice the reaction he received, and then to notice our commanded connection to him. Jesus was hated because he brought the light of God's truth to the world, and it scandalized them. They love darkness, because darkness hides their evil. Well, light exposes evil for what it is. When we fall into false humility, we're trying to make light less revealing for the sake of some sort of camaraderie, some sort of sense of equality. When we do that, we are not imitating the Lord who died for us and loves us. A helpful way, I think, to to see the lay of the land and to remember the danger. And the answer is to say something like this. The only alternative to false humility is not pride. It's not the only alternative. There is something else in the middle that we could call the truth. The world will still hate it, though, and will call it pride. Because what does it do? It suggests that there's something that they need, that there's something that is missing, that there's some standard that's being failed and for which they'll be judged. What's that sound like to them? Pride? Don't tell me. It will sound like pride. It's not pride. It's the truth. They will say to us, who do you make yourself out to be? But we're reminded of the things we need in this text in such moments. We're reminded that they are not the judge of those things. They are not the ones in front of whom we will stand one day. And those whom we are brought into relation with, interaction with in this world, who see us as born-again believers, those in that midst whom God is calling to himself, they will see that light. They will hear his voice. They'll want what we have. And they will be one. One by the light. We are to remember what this Jesus promised his people in chapter 15 of the same gospel. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And as we've gone through this chapter, we should notice that that is exactly the refrain that Jesus has been giving to this crowd all the way through the chapter. You don't know him who sent me. I pray that this passage for us this morning is a great protective and maybe even corrective. As we work steadfastly to resist the sin of pride, today we pray, may God also protect his people from the sin of false humility. Would you pray with me? Father, we are and will for eternity be grateful and praise your name for the ways that you so faithfully provide for your people. The ways that you so patiently bear with your people and let love cover a multitude of sins. Lord, we thank you for the grace and freedom of conscience that we are able to enjoy in this life because we know that every sin past, present, and future, has been atoned for by your Son on the cross for those whose trust is in him. Lord, we simply pray today, give us a clear sense of his place in our lives as our Lord. Make it our ambition in all things to be pleasing to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.